Can we just pray again? God, the words of that song, incredibly moving, how great is your love for us. And yet, God, I'm not sure we really fathom that. I'm not sure we really understand just how great your love is for us. So today we, we want to echo Paul's prayer in Ephesians that you would open the eyes of our heart, enlighten us so that we would know the height and the depth and the breadth of your love for us in Christ. Do you help us, God, today comprehend just how great your love really is in Jesus for each of us that are your children? And God, as we open your word again today, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see what it tells us and the difference that makes to our lives, we pray. In your name, amen. Well, kia ora. It's good to see you at our Summit Church, whether you're here at Botany or whether you are in Summit Church Hastings. Kia ora to you guys. Great to have you with us. Or if you're watching or listening to this online, it's cool to have you with us as well. We are in this series that we're calling Summit Journey, which is the name of our new discipleship strategy that we are kind of rolling out and introducing over these couple of months at the start of 2019. And on your uh, chair today was what we're calling a little, just a guidebook uh, to Summit Journey. So if you want to grab one of these and take it with you, you can. Uh, if you don't, um, maybe don't sit on it because then we can't recycle it. But So if you're not wanting it, just slip it under the seat in front of you or something like that. But this has essentially just been uh, designed to kind of pull together the whole discipleship strategy and give you a little bit of a guidebook to it. And so inside, there's a place for you if you want to keep one of these for yourself to put your name and so on. There's not a heap of room to write notes, so that's what our journals are for. If you want a journal, we've got a number of blank ones out on the, on the um, welcome table, the info table out in the foyer. Um, but the idea is this is trying to just pull together this whole strategy here. And so the key question on the inside page here is the one that we're wrestling with as we walk through this journey together over these couple of months. How am I planning to intentionally become more like Jesus this year? And then underneath that question is, um, is these four additional questions. Why do I want to grow in my walk with God? Where do I need to grow in my walk with God? Who do I need to journey with? And how am I going to do that? And so we introduced that first why question two weeks ago, um, introduced the concept of what I call gospel-driven growth, that our heart needs to be in the right place. And if we're going to really plan to intentionally become more like Jesus as his followers... The heart needs to be right, and that needs to be motivated by the good news, the gospel of his grace. And then last week, we jumped the where, and we came down to the who, and and talked about intentional community. Who are we going to journey with um, for this next season to really become more mature? And we introduced four types of community, uh, groups, um, peers, classes, and teams. And so those are introduced a little bit more later in this booklet for you. Um, But we're widening out how we do community in our church, not only community groups, which have been a key part of our life um, for the 15 years we've been going, but now we're wanting to add mentoring peers and classes 
um, in and, and our serving teams as different ways of doing community with each other. Today, then, we're jumping back to the where question, and we are embarking on the next seven weeks of unpacking this question. And what we're pushing towards is what I want to call today uh, deliberate reflection. Where is it in your life that you would like to intentionally grow this year? Which part of your life would you like to become more like Jesus in? Because the reality is we can't just try and grow in every facet of life. It's much better to say, I'm going to be specific and I'm going to really pursue being like Jesus in this area of life. And so we've introduced um, this idea of seven key traits of a disciple. And if you open up your booklet, if you want to use this to, the, to basically the middle where the staples come in, you'll see these seven traits. Uh, Christ-like character, a biblical mindset, heartfelt prayer and worship, healthy relationships, natural evangelism, humble service, and joyful generosity. And over the next seven Sundays, we're going to walk through each of these traits and just plumb the depths a little bit of what is it that we're talking about in this key area of life, and is this perhaps the area that you need to look at to grow in uh, this coming year. And so there's seven of these kind of particular areas of life that we want to introduce one by one. And the key question is up in the top right corner um, of this page. Um, deliberate reflection means asking this question, where is the Holy Spirit nudging me to grow with him in the next season of life? And we're hoping that as we walk through these next seven weeks, that, um, that just unfolding what each of these seven characteristics or traits look like will help with some of that reflection. Hoping that as you talk in small groups or in mentoring peers or however you're doing community this year, that that will help you reflect on that. It's often good, I think, to actually talk to um, the people maybe you live with, your spouse, kids, your flatmates. You know, where do you think I need to grow? Just be ready for the answer if that's what you're going to ask the people that you live with, but sometimes reflecting with each other in, in family units or in flat situations can be actually a really helpful thing. And then how is the Holy Spirit prompting you? Where are you sensing that he would like to really grow you over this coming year? That's really what we're inviting ourselves into over these next seven weeks, to, to think that through. And so uh, this morning, we're going to start off with this first um, trait of what I've called Christ-like character. And we're going to use this passage that uh, we've got here on the screen, Galatians 5, 22 to 26. So if you've got a Bible with you, or you've got a phone with the Bible app, or something like that, I'd love you to, to grab that and come with me to Galatians chapter 5. We actually preached through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote a few years ago, and if you want to get that whole series, you'll find it on our website or on the app um, under under the sermon series there, you just kind of scroll backwards through previous years. Um, but I want to jump into this quite familiar passage to us and use this as the basis for thinking about how we develop and grow in Christ-like character. Now, in the middle pages of this guidebook, you'll see that for each of these seven traits, we've identified five key things. So the first one is a key identity. So if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have placed your faith in him and have a relationship with God through Jesus, um, what that means is that you are someone quite special in seven key ways. 
And so the key identity for this Christ-like character trait is that I'm a disciple of Jesus. A disciple was the word that you used in the ancient world, both in the Jewish culture, but also wider than that. So the ancient Greek philosophers like Socrates and Plato, they had disciples. So a disciple was a, a student who followed a, a teacher or philosopher and based their life on that person's teachings and lifestyle. And so it was also part not only of the Greek culture, but also the Jewish culture. Um, many of the rabbis and the teachers would have disciples. They would handpick the elite among all of the little um, synagogue schools, the elite students to come and be their disciples. And then Jesus turns up on the scene as a rabbi, a teacher, and he starts inviting, not the elite, he starts inviting run-of-the-mill ordinary men and women to come and be his disciples. But to be his disciple means to be his, his follower, his pupil, someone who is not only listening to and obeying and trying to put into place his teachings, but actually follow him and emulate him and walk with him. That's what it means to be a disciple. So there's a verse in Luke 6.40 where Jesus says the student or the disciple is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. So to be a disciple of Jesus is to be a, a woman or a man who follows him and is increasingly trying to become like him. So when we talk about Christ-like character as the first key trait that we may want to look at focusing in and growing on this year, we're coming to that as disciples, as followers of Jesus who want to live out his teachings and become more and more like him. And so that's why the key verb for this particular trait is become. We've already seen that a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about gospel-driven growth, the why, that that we're in this lifelong process, if we're a follower of Jesus, of becoming more and more like him. Uh, I will not be fully like Jesus until the day I get to heaven. And the final part of that, which is still a significant change that needs to happen, will be done instantaneously, and I will be fully like Jesus. But at the moment, I'm in this process of becoming, and so are you. Because none of us have arrived. None of us are fully like Jesus yet. In fact, we know that we are still very far from that. But there's this process of becoming. And for each of these traits, I'm, I'm, I've noted down a key challenge. What is it that stops us really growing in this area? And these are just my ideas, so they're not gospel or anything, so feel free to cross them out if you want. But I think the key challenge in this area of Christ-like character is discouragement. Honestly, some of the others are more that we'll get to in the next coming six weeks are more kind of sin issues we need to deal with. But I honestly think the key challenge in becoming more and more like Jesus in our character that we face is discouragement. Because we look in the mirror and we look at the way we behaved yesterday and we think about the way we, we lost our rag at our kids or we think about the way we, we, we answered back to our parents when they lost their rag at us. We think about the way that we, 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 we struggle with our, our self-centered attitudes deep within our own hearts. We think about the language that we sometimes give into, or the way we've gossiped, or the things we look at, or the stuff we say, or just the, the horrible stuff that goes on in our head. And I honestly think for many of us, we don't grow in this area as much, almost more out of discouragement than anything else. 
we just look at our lives and look at where we'd love to be and look at where we are at the moment and we just actually feel really down. And my hope today is more than anything, I can blow some wind into your sails and bring some encouragement to us that actually we're changing and becoming more deeply than we know. And I hope that that encouragement actually spurs some of us to say, you know, as I look at how I am going to intentionally become more like Jesus this year, I'm going after Christ-like character. Because I feel encouraged about where I may get to this year. So the key passage for this one is going to be Galatians 5, to 26. So if you've got it in front of you, I want to read these verses to us now. So if you've got a Bible there or your app or anything like that, just follow along as I read. So Galatians 5, beginning in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Now, we dealt with this passage in depth when we did our Galatians series, but what we need to understand as we come to this passage again this morning is that we're breaking midway through the argument. And so that's why when you start verse 22, there's a really important little word there at the beginning of that sentence, and it's but. And what Paul is doing is he's forming a contrast. This list of character traits that we call the fruit of the Spirit, which I want to explore in a minute, is being contrasted with another list that's in the previous verses, beginning in verse, ni- uh, verse 19. The acts of the flesh. So that's what's being contrasted. The acts of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And the acts of the flesh are things like sexual immorality and impurity and debauchery and idolatry and witchcraft and hatred and so on. And he goes through this long list of all the stuff that flows out of the hearts of people who are far from God and still can flow out of our hearts, even though we've trusted in Jesus. And there's some, some different kinds of sins. He, he, he particularly goes after sexual sin and relational sin and sins around drunkenness. But really, both of these lists are sample lists. And what he's doing, what Paul's doing in this letter is he's drawing this contrast between what he calls the acts of the flesh or the, the stuff that we do when left to ourselves because of our sinful tendencies and what the fruit of the Spirit is. And his language is really deliberate. Notice that he doesn't contrast the acts of the flesh with the acts of the Spirit. Because the contrast is not what what I do when left to myself and my sinful tendencies versus what I do when I'm walking with the Spirit. The contrast is more subtle than that. It's what I do when I'm left to my sinful tendencies of my flesh versus, hear this, what the Holy Spirit is doing in me. And that's the key thing we need to understand as we come to this passage. So, we're going to dive into more into that, but there's, there's five key things about each of these traits. We've looked at four. The fifth one is the key question at the bottom of that middle page in your guide. 
And the key question really is the big idea for each of these seven messages. So the key question I want us to think about today, and all of them start with the same three words, to what extent? And the key question today is to what extent am I cooperating with the Holy Spirit in me to mature and become more like Jesus in my character? So it's not to what extent am I working hard to produce this fruit? The question is rather to what extent am I cooperating with the Holy Spirit in me to become more like Jesus in my character? And that's because there's something incredibly important we need to understand about this list of character traits we call the fruit of the Spirit. And it's this. The Holy Spirit is producing his character in you. See, I misunderstood this part of the Bible for years. I thought that the, this list was a list of characteristics, of, of, of character traits that I was meant to work hard to become more like. So I was meant to be more loving and more joyous and more peaceful, and I want to walk through what each of those mean in a minute. And I need to work hard to be more patient, especially when I'm driving. And I need to work hard to be more kind, especially with people that I don't like. And I need to work hard to be more, um, more forbearing. All, all these lists, more self-controlled and so on. That's not what Paul says. In that list, verses 22 and 23... This list of the fruit of the Spirit, there is not a command to you. He's not telling you to do something. He's telling you what the Spirit is doing in you if you are a follower of Jesus. And I actually think when we grasp this, it becomes incredibly encouraging. We are commanded in other parts of the Bible to work hard at loving one another. We are commanded in other parts of the Bible to put on patience and put on compassion and put on gentleness. We are commanded to work at these traits in our lives elsewhere. But in this passage, the emphasis that Paul is making is that this is what the Holy Spirit is already doing in your life. And I find that super encouraging. I love the way that one commentator, Terry Johnson, describes this. He says, Paul's emphasis is on the Spirit's sole agency in transforming the believer. In other words, the emphasis is on this is what the Holy Spirit is doing, not on this is what you need to work hard at. It's this is the work of the Spirit in you. This is the Spirit's fruit, he writes. He produces it. He grows it. Like fruit, it develops naturally as a result of the Spirit's presence in the heart of the believer. And what I want us to hear, especially if we are discouraged today by the, the seeming lack of progress in our lives towards being more like Jesus, I want us to hear that this is what Paul is saying. This is what the Spirit produces in you, his fruit. So what do we mean by that? I think we've so used, many of us are so used to reading these words that they lose all meaning. So I just want to take a few minutes to actually define and explain for us what these nine traits actually mean. So let's start with love. Love in our world is an emotion. It's how you feel. You fall in love. And it's how you feel about someone. And so we, we, we find it hard to control our emotions. When you come to the Bible, there is an emotive 
part to love. There is an emotive component, but love is not primarily an emotion in the Bible. Love is action. Love is doing something because of compassion towards someone else. Doing uh, action on their behalf for their good. That's what love is. So I've defined it up here as action-oriented, others-focused compassion. It's very hard when you've only got four words or five words to define, but this is my best shot. So love in the Bible is an action-oriented, others-centered compassion. There is feeling there for sure, but it's not primarily a feeling. It's a decision of our will that we will do what is necessary for the good and benefit of another person that we say we love. And that's something that the Holy Spirit, if you're a follower of Jesus, is growing in you. Joy, we often also think of as an emotion. Joy is a, a happy feeling. It's a, it's a bubbly personality. I've just been doing a, um, a test called Strength Finders. Some of you may have heard of it. We're getting, taking all of our staff through it so we get to know each other better. 34 key strengths. My number two strength is positivity. It means I look at a glass, you know, half full and say it's three quarters. That's just how I approach life. That's not what joy is. Joy is not positivity. Joy is not a personality trait. Joy is not just someone who's happy all the time. It's actually not emotive at all. Joy is an attitude that we choose to adopt in life, regardless of the circumstances we're facing, because of the hope we have in Jesus. That's the essence of joy. So joy is this hope-filled attitude that whether life is gloriously wonderful or whether life right now is desperately hard, there's the sense of I can still walk with Jesus and trust him through this because there is hope in the gospel. That's joy, not an emotion, an attitude regardless of circumstance. Peace is actually, I think, one of the ones we get most wrong when we come to this list. Most of us read this list, the fruit of the Spirit is peace, and we think an inner tranquility. And that's sometimes how the word peace can be used in the New Testament, but that's not the primary meaning of the word. The primary meaning of the word is relational. So in other words, it's not an inner sense of peace in my own heart. It's, It's that I'm at peace with others around me. I'm at peace with God through what Jesus has done, but I'm also at peace with others. It's about harmonious relationships. And so when the fruit of the Spirit is is bringing up and, and developing this character trait in us, it means things like we're quick to forgive, and we're quick to extend grace, and we're quick to confess when we've stuffed it up. And we're gracious with each other, and we bear with A lot of those one another commands are living out this fruit of peace. We are peacemakers. We are pursuers of peace with one another and with other people. The fourth trait is what the latest version of the new NIV, the translation we use here, translates as forbearance. It used to be translated patience. I wish they'd just stuck with patience, actually. It's a little bit easier to understand. I haven't used forbearance in a sentence in a number of years apart from now. But it's patience. It's being long-suffering. It's being um, slow to take offense, slow to get angry at people, just being patient. We understand that, I think. Um, These are the five. 
kindness. I think we get kindness. We, we get that. It's, it's, I've just called it gracious and generous acts of caring. It's being kind to other people. Um, Jesus talked about treating others as you would like to be treated. That's the kind of aspect. It's the next one that I think we get wrong. And in fact, it's, it's interesting the number of commentators that, that put kindness and goodness together and just say oh, it's pretty much the same thing. It's actually not. All of these traits overlap each other for sure, but goodness and kindness are quite different. So kindness is grace and generosity towards others. Goodness almost has the idea of a moral goodness, of, of doing what is right and holy, I think is the idea of goodness. So it's, it's pushing towards, am I living life in a way that pleases God and that displays his holiness to other people. That's part of the fruit that the Spirit is bearing in us. Faithfulness, I think we understand that. It means to be trustworthy. It means to be reliable. It means to be a woman or man whose word can be relied on. When we say we will do something, we do something and we follow through well. Gentleness used to be translated in some older Bible translations as meekness. And it was kind of like, good night, that's the one I don't want. You know, that sounds so pathetic. But actually, it's an awesome word because it's a, it's a word of strength. It's, it's someone who is incredibly powerful, but who has that under control in a way that they are quiet and humble and careful and gentle. It's the image of some rugged, big, you know, lumberjacker or footballer tenderly holding a newborn infant. That's the imagery of gentleness with others. And then self-control, of course, is this idea of disciplined self-restraint, of, of not just letting loose, of not firing off the handle, of not losing control, but remaining in control of who we are no matter what the circumstances are. And when you go through that list, I think it's easy to feel discouraged because you go through that list and you think, man, I'm not particularly strong there and, man, I think I'd give myself a 10 out of 100 grade on that one and this doesn't feel like me. But we need to hear what the Word of God is saying to us. This is the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, this is the character that the Holy Spirit is producing in us couple of points I want to make before we move on from this part of the passage. Number one, this is not an exhaustive list. It's not meant to be that there are nine fruit of the Spirit and no more. This is an example list Paul is giving. He'll use the word fruit in another list in Ephesians for some other things. Now, many of the New Testament writers will talk about other character traits, humility, compassion, graciousness, that haven't made this list, but they are still equally the fruit of the Spirit. But it's character that the Holy Spirit is producing in us. The second thing I want us to just stop and realize for a minute is that as Paul is painting this picture of the fruit of the Spirit, he's painting the picture of a person. Because what he's doing is, is he's describing the character of the greatest person who has ever lived. He's describing Jesus. Because Jesus was the most loving person, the most joyous person, the greatest peacemaker and reconciler, the most wonderful, patient and forbearing person, the kindest and most generous person, and you just keep going through the list, that has ever lived. And so as Paul is describing this fruit of the Spirit, he is describing 
the character of Jesus. And what he's saying in this passage is that if you are a follower of Christ, he's producing this in you. This is a massive difference, the hugest difference between the good news of Jesus and self-help in our world today. Both of those ideas recognize that human beings can be pretty desperately bad. But the self-help movement is all about you improving yourself and you replacing the acts of the flesh with good acts and working hard. The good news of Jesus comes in and says, no, no, it's not about trying harder. It's about accepting this wonderful message of grace and committing your life to Jesus by faith and the Holy Spirit, God himself, taking up residence inside you and starting to change you from the inside out in ways that you may not even be recognizing yet. And if you're not a follower of Jesus today, if you haven't placed your faith in him, <clears throat> if maybe you're at church today because you've come with a friend or you're just interested in this and checking this out, you need to understand Christianity is not a self-help movement. It's actually it's a, it's a group of very ordinary people who realize that by ourselves, left to ourselves, we're a mess and we're rebels against God. And actually, the bad news of the Bible is that we're going to be judged for that and banished from God's presence forever. But God loves us so much that he's provided a way not only of escaping eternity without him and his wrath, but he's also provided a way of becoming the people that we were created to be. And we understand we can't do it by ourselves and we accept the invitation to come to Jesus in simple faith. He begins this work of transforming us from the inside out. So here's what I want you to hear today. If you are a follower of Jesus, be encouraged. God's at work in you. You may not see it as much as you'd like to see it. You may look at a list like that and think, I don't measure up on any of those. True. But you are changing. And he is at work because the Spirit never leaves you where you are when you trusted in Christ. He is constantly at work, changing you for the better and slowly helping you become more and more like Jesus. However, there's another side to this, isn't there? Because we're not there yet. And actually, it's hard work. And so Paul is actually really good because on one hand in this passage, he says, hey, the Holy Spirit is producing his character in you already, so be encouraged. But then at the same time, he's also telling us, but there is an internal conflict going on. So be realistic about it as well. That's what he says earlier on in verses we haven't read, but I want, I want to read these two verses now, verses 16 and 17, if you've got your Bible or your app open there. He says, so I say, now here's the command, walk by the Spirit. Or walk with the Spirit. And then he says, And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh, he says, verse 17, desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Paul is a realist. <clears throat> and he wants us to be encouraged. 
that the Holy Spirit's at work in us, changing us, but at the same time, he wants us to be realistic that there is this battle going on internally with us, and that battle is going to keep on going for the rest of our lives before we get to heaven. And so while on one hand, we should be really encouraged, on the other hand, we've got to be realistic and not have these inflated expectations that because the Holy Spirit's at work in us, number one, that means we can lay back on our deck chair and let go and let God and not do anything. And and number two, we should expect to be like up to 90% on the loving scale by next week because the Holy Spirit's working on us. So come on. Because what Paul is saying is there's this internal conflict going on within us all the time. Love the way that one commentator, Thomas Schreiner, describes this. He says, The Christian life is not an ethereal existence in which the conflicts of this world are left behind. We do not float into a new sphere that cuts us off from the pressures and desires of the present evil age. So he's saying, be encouraged that the Spirit is at work in us, but, but don't therefore assume that, well, man, then I'm, I'm sweet. I'll have no more issues. I'll never lust again. I'll never want to lie again. I'll never get angry again. <clears throat> because this conflict is going on. He goes on, desires for evil still afflict us and bedevil us. It is far too simplistic then to say that believers can just let go and let God. We should not become discouraged though and think that we aren't Christians if we're engaged in a struggle with sin. The opposition between the flesh and the spirit, he says, is the normal Christian life. I love the balance that Paul brings here. On one hand, he wants us to be deeply encouraged that God's at work in us by his spirit in ways we, we may not even understand or see yet. But at the same time, he wants us to be very realistic that, oh my goodness, this is hard work. And I, and I feel in this battle with sin all the time. Because, you know, I know I should be loving and kind to my brother or to my parents or to that work colleague that is an idiot. And yet there's this battle going on because I want to tell them they're an idiot in Jesus' name. You know? I don't mean that about any of my colleagues, by the way. Just make that clear. So I think it's a really healthy view of life. He's wanting us to be encouraged on the one hand. God is at work in us more deeply than we can understand by his spirit. But at the same time, we have to be realistic that this conflict is going on within us and it will continue to be part of our normal Christian life until Jesus takes us home. And so we need to put those two things together then, and this is where he goes at the end of this little passage we're looking at, that we need to cooperate and walk with the Spirit. And we need to be fully engaged with Him. See, he's already said, we just saw that command in those early verses in verse 16, Paul said, walk by the Spirit. He picks up a similar idea in verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. See, there's this balance act in these verses. On one hand, he says, if the Spirit is the one who is working in us, producing his fruit, we need to make sure we're in close relationship with the Holy Spirit. We need to walk with the Holy Spirit. We need to journey through life with the Holy Spirit. But then in verse 26, he turns around 
And he says, and let us not provoke each other. Let us not be envious. So in other words, I walk with the Spirit and trust Him on one hand, but I have to work really hard to not give in to those desires of the flesh. On the other hand, because I want to produce this fruit. So there's this both and kind of thing. And Paul does this lots. Let me give you two examples from elsewhere in the New Testament. This is Paul in Colossians 1. God has chosen, he says, to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. Now, a mystery in the New Testament is not something... It's not that. A mystery in the New Testament is something that wasn't clear in the Old Testament, but now is clear and has been revealed to us. So what is this mystery? Well, he says it in the next line. This mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, actually living inside of you. It's in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit would come on particular key leaders of the nation of Israel, but ordinary men and women did not have God dwelling within them. And Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, says, man, you know you and I have something that is phenomenally different to what they had in the Old Testament. We have Christ in us. We have the Holy Spirit within. We have God. The God who created the world has taken up residence in you. And he goes on and says, He's the one we proclaim so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Now look at verse 29. To this end then, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So, hold on, Paul. So who's, are you working or is Christ working? And Paul would say, yes. It's both. See, Philippians 1 is another example of this. If it would come up on the screen. There it is. Sorry, Philippians 2. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So sorry, so, Paul, so, so do I work or, or, or is God working? And Paul says, yes. It's both. God is in us through his spirit, changing us, growing us, bringing through the character of Jesus. And at the same time, we are to work and cooperate and walk with him. I love the way that Tim Keller is one of my favorite authors these days, pastor in New York. Uh, he writes this about what he calls this paradox. He says, if it was all up to us, we would labor under crashing anxiety and burnout. If you did not have the Holy Spirit and God just said to you, be holy, be loving, be joyous and a peacemaker and, and all of that. And you're, it's, it's all up to you. I mean, we'd all give up, wouldn't we? Good night. But he says, but if God only worked apart from us, we'd lose all sense of initiative. I mean, if God just was going to zap you and make you like Jesus, how many of us would work hard? Man, we'd all go lie out and, you know, enjoy something cool on a nice lounger. But what he says is, this paradox is that both we work hard to become more like Jesus, but on the understanding that the Spirit is already at work in us, helping us become more like Jesus. And this is the paradox, he says. It gives us enough incentive on one hand for us to work hard, but enough assurance on the other hand, because God is at work in us so that we can pursue God all our life long. 
So what does this actually look like in real life? Well, I have good news today. I have a prop. I have something that is going to clear everything up. Are you ready? Here we go. Anyone know what this is? It's a bike. A very special bike. Yes, I heard it. It's an e-bike. How many of you have ridden an e-bike? A few. I'd never ridden one of these. By the way, this is, uh, this is the Greys. Um, so Jeff kindly dropped this off for me uh, this morning to have up here on stage with me. This is an e-bike. And I hadn't used an e-bike until a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, our family got to experience this. This is the Otago Rail Trail. And Rochelle and I and our boys, together with her parents, Roland and Elaine, who are part of our church, and her brother and sister-in-law and their two kids, we rode the Otago Rail Trail. So 11 of us, five days, jumped on bikes, and we rode this old uh, rail trail through central Otago, middle of autumn. The colours were far more stunning than this one picture shows, but it was amazing. So we spent five days. I think it was the, the morning of the third day, I think. I can't quite remember, but it was the morning of the third day, and we were about a kilometre along that next path that we were doing that day, and Roland realised he'd left something back at the bed and breakfast. So we all stopped, and Roland cycled back, uh, to go get what he'd left, and then I think it was one of our boys, I don't remember who, but one of our boys, I think, suddenly realised they'd left their phone charger back there as well. They had the phone, but the phone charger was still sitting in the plug. So I said, Look, I'll, I'll go back. So Elaine says to me, take my bike. See, the rest of us had hired just ordinary push bikes, but Roland and Elaine, in their wisdom, they'd hired these puppies. <laughs> and so... I put my ordinary little push bike at the side and I jumped on Elaine's e-bike and rode back. It was the best bike ride of my life. <laughs> because the way an e-bike works, for those of you who have never ridden it, is you have to pedal. But as you pedal, you crank up the engine and it has this little speedo thing on here and you crank up this little motor in here and as you pedal... The, the engine kicks in, the motor kicks in, and it multiplies your pedaling effort so that you go much faster than you would all on your own. And I was hitting some serious speed on a gravel pathway, thinking, trying to catch Roland up because he was in the distance, thinking, this is awesome. And then I realised what had been happening these previous two days. See, the first two days, no matter which end of the rail trail you start at, the first two days, you're going uphill. On this, you know, it's not too bad an incline because it used to be a railway track, but you're heading uphill. And I'd been cycling for these last two days, head down, you know, legs burning, just pumping to get up this thing and stuff. And then I'd look ahead of me, and there would be my parents in law who are 25 years older than me. And they're just sitting there, peddling. <laughs> and they're looking at the scenery, and they're chatting away to grandkids. And I'm behind them, <laughs> like this. And, and I suddenly realised why they were having so much better time than me. I was having a great time, and I was looking at scenery. But the difference of an e-bike was incredible. I think this is the most powerful illustration I know of the difference of having the Holy Spirit in your life versus not. 
Because a person who is not a follower of Jesus, who does not have the Spirit, is like on a push bike all on their own. And it is completely over to you whether or not any life change can happen. And I would argue no significant, deep-rooted life change can actually happen. It's just behavior modification through your own efforts. But what happens when the Holy Spirit comes and resides in us is suddenly we're on an e-bike. And we do have to do some work. We do have to put some effort in. We do have to work at loving more and, and being more patient and being kinder and more holy and so on. But what we don't realize, and we may not even realize it as we ride through life, is that the Spirit is at work in us, multiplying our efforts far more than we realize and helping us become more and more like Jesus faster than we think we actually are going. And that's the joy of what Paul is writing about here. And so that's why Paul, in this passage, doesn't say, work hard at being more loving. You know, really go all out and be more patient. What he says is, walk with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Listen to his promptings. Read the word he's inspired. Gather with his people. But most of all, trust him. That as you work on traits of your own character, he's at work in you. He is multiplying life change more than you realize. And so the question I want us to just reflect on this morning is to what extent am I cooperating with him? To what extent am I trusting and crying out to him that as I work on being more loving, on being more faithful, on being more self-controlled, what extent am I cooperating with him, trusting in him, listening for his promptings, trusting that he is empowering me to become more and more like Jesus? As we finished today, I want to ask you, which of these messages from Galatians 5 do you need most today? Do you need to be encouraged do you need fresh wind in your sails? Then I hope you'll take it from this passage. He is in you if you're a follower of Jesus. And he is changing you, whether you realize it or not. So my hope for you is that if you are needing encouragement today, you will go out of here excited at what he is doing already in your life. If you need a little bit more realism. Maybe if your expectations have been too high, you thought you'd be past this conflict. I remember sitting as a teenager with an 88-year-old man in our church, and I remember asking him, what is it that you're surprised by now at the, towards the end of your pilgrimage? I was quite careful. And Evan looked at me and said, I am surprised how much I'm still struggling with sin. And we shouldn't be. And maybe for you, if that's what you need to hear today, I pray you hear that. Don't be surprised. Be a realist. Conflict is part of this. But maybe for you, it's this third one. Where God is saying, engage. Let's go. Fully engage with me. Work at obeying what I've called you to be but at the same time understand that as you pedal, 
I am with you, empowering this life change you long to see. To what extent then am I cooperating with the Spirit to mature and become more like Jesus in character? I'm going to ask the band if they would come back up. And they're going to introduce uh, another new song to us um, this morning that I think actually fits perfectly um, with this topic today of Christ-like character and the, the work of the Spirit in us. The song is called Build My Life, and they're going to start it and introduce it to us, and then they'll invite us to join in. If you know it already, which many of you may do, then just feel free to sit there and sing along. You can. Um, but I think this song is really pertinent to today for, for two key reasons. Number one, at the heart of the song is the worthiness of Jesus. Um, that's how it starts off, and that's what permeates the song. And I love that. At the end of the day, the work of the Spirit in us is to make us more like Jesus, is to bear his fruit, which is the character of Jesus, because Jesus is worthy of that. And so this song is a reminder to us of his worthiness. But the other reason I think this song fits so beautifully is it's really a heart cry to God. Would you build my life? Would you change my heart? Would you give me the very desire to become more like Jesus? So I want to invite you to make this our prayer collectively as we finish the service this morning. Jesus, you are worthy. Would you build my life? Thanks, guys.
Jesus, the only one who could ever say, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. And home. 